The following is a live podcast recorded at the Disruptor Series Live at TBWA Shiat Day, New York. Yo, I need a bigger, warmer welcome for Charlemagne the God. Hey. What's up, Doug? Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for stopping by. Glad you were in the neighborhood. Yes, sir. So, uh, 20 years you've been on radio, host yeah. of The Breakfast Club. Not and, uh, on The Breakfast Club 20 years, but 20 a, years in the radio business. 20 years in the yes, radio minus, business. Minus, you know, a few firings here or there, but you know. Yeah. yeah. I read yeah. four firings, huh? Four firings, but I started off as an intern in 1998, so I've been fired four times from 1998 to 2009. Yeah. Yes. And it's kind of a rite of passage on the radio industry. Yeah, know? somebody told me a long time ago, it's weird, because the first time you get fired, they'd be like, ah, oh, you're okay, you're nobody till you get fired. Then the second time you get fired, they're like, Oh, it's okay. You know, you know, you're nobody till you get fired <laughs> twice. And then they're like, you get fired three times. You'd be like, oh, you know, when you get fired three times, you're a superstar. And then you get fired four times. They're like, hey, maybe you need to try something else. <laughs> you know? How does that make you feel, though? Because I know people tell you that that's a rite of passage, but it doesn't seem like when you get fired, you don't actually go out and celebrate. Yeah, until you just understand that's the nature of the beast. But I believe in divine misdirection. So I feel like, you know, every time I got fired, I actually got fired up. Because every time I got fired, I ended up in a better position. Yeah, that's you great. know? Which is it's actually a very weird space because a lot of us never know when to leave something. You know? So sometimes God will move us. You know? Like, I've been doing the Breakfast Club eight years and I'm confused. I'm like, shit, I ain't never worked someplace this long. Ever. <laughs> So I guess I'm supposed to be here. Yeah. <laughs> when you got fired, do you remember the places that you worked at that time? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, I remember every single one. The first time I got fired, I was working at Hot 98.9 in Charleston, South Carolina. I needed that one, though. The reason I needed that one is because I always, like, I've always been pretty, like, you know, cool, I guess. Like, you know, always cutting up in school. I got uh, expelled from two high schools, so I was like the class clown. So it's like I always had, like, attention on me, but when I got on the radio in, in Charleston, South Carolina, that was different. Like, that was, like, my first taste of fame, so to speak. Like, the first time I ever saw, like, my name on a, a marquee somewhere. So that kind of got to my head a little bit. So I feel like I kind of needed that first firing because that was a humbling experience. Yeah, because yeah, then you realize you're not bigger than no company you, you work for. Ego's a hell of a drug. Oh, a hell of a drug. hell of a drug. Great book you should read is Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. I shouldn't be promoting nobody else's book today, but I just wanted to <laughs> throw that out there. No, yeah. but I think people do get drunk off their own ego. They, you know, they're, they're drunk off their own name and likeness. A hundred percent. Yeah, so that actually leads into part of the things we're talking about today. But how did you get started in radio? Maybe take us back to South Carolina, Monk's Corner. Maybe kind of go through a little bit of your story, how you got here, navigated your way through a room full of no's, and mm. kind of made it to where you are today. Um, I was like I said, I was a bad kid, so I was like always getting in trouble. So I got expelled a couple of times, and then you know my, my father would always tell me that if I don't change my my lifestyle, you know I'm gonna end up in jail, dead, or broke sitting under the tree. Because you know the school behavior, acting up in school, and turned into me acting up in the street. So you know I was selling crack, you know riding around with guns, getting in trouble, in and out of jail, and it was like you know one time I was sitting in there for the weekend. I think it was like. Maybe the second or third time I got arrested for drug possession, and I was just like, yo, my father is absolutely positively correct. It's like the third time I've been in jail. People around me are going to prison. All my older cousins who I used to look up to, they're really, 
you know, broke sitting under the tree. You know, I got I got other people that are getting killed. They're actually dead. So it's like everything my father is telling me is is coming true. So I was always a stern believer that smart people learn from their own mistakes, wise people learn from the mistakes of others. So even though I was bumping my head, I was watching other people really bump their head. So in my mind, I was like, yo, I have to change my lifestyle totally. So I just started working a bunch of odd jobs. I did anything I had to do to stay out of the street. So I started working at like, I worked at a, um, a warehouse called Industrial Acoustics Company. I did telemarketing, you know, I was the guy that would call your house and try to sell you 10 CDs for a penny, you know. <laughs> I worked at um, I worked at Taco Bell for a little while, you know, and I, got, I only worked there for two weeks. My sister was the manager, she fired me. Um, <laughs> I worked at a flower garden, where else did I work? I worked at Demo in the mall. Remember that clothing store called Demo in the mall? They used to sell like all the Flyer Urban brands. I hate that word, Urban. But they used to sell Fat Farm and Sean John and all of that stuff like that. And so I used to work there. And you know, I was I used to want to rap too, like like most most dudes in the hood. And I used to be in this recording studio. And I met this guy who did radio at the local station Z93 Jams, which is like the big station in Charleston, South Carolina. His name was Willie Will. And so I just you know, asked him, I'm like, Yo, how did you get in the radio? And he was like, I went down there and I got an internship. And I was like, it's that easy? Like, I don't have to be in school or anything? And he was like, nah. Now, mind you, this is 1998, Charleston, South Carolina. So things were totally different as far as internships and all that were concerned. <laughs> yeah. So I went down to the radio station and I got an internship. And, you know, for me, I wasn't getting paid any money, but it was just the fact that I was in this productive environment. You know, to me, that was like the... I mean, even, even though I had jobs, that was like a real corporate structure, you know? So I was, you know, the intern that was basically doing whatever I had to do, driving the station vehicles to different events, helping the personalities set up, going to get the Jock's Pizza. You know, I still had one foot in the street, so if they needed weed, I'd go get them that too. So I, I quickly became everybody's favorite intern. Yeah. And Isn't that amazing how that still works? It still you. works. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. And, and so... So, just kidding. So, <laughs> so they never, they never minded me hanging out, you know. So I would just be hanging in the radio station with them all day, and sometimes they would open the microphone and just, you know, ask me to speak. Yeah, let you get in where you fit in. That's right. it. Yeah. And then one day, the music director, his name was Ron White. He just asked me. He was like, "Yo, do you want, you want to be on the radio?" And I was like, "Sure." Well, he asked me if I have a thought about being on the radio, and I was like, "Not really, but cool." And so they started putting me on Sunday nights, no, Sunday mornings from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. And that only lasted like two weeks because I was scaring all the church folks. So they moved me. They, <laughs> they moved, moved you at 1 a.m. to 3 a.m.? They moved me to Saturday nights, 7 to midnight. Okay. And then eventually overnight. So that's how I got into the, the radio game. And they just let you kind of come in and just communicate on air? and, and that's uh... Yes, they did for about mm, a year and a half. About a year and a half, and then I, you know, I got I got a complaint, a lot of complaints, and so my then program director Terry Bass, he put me on liners, and liners is when you know you open up the microphone and all you can say is like Power 1051, home of hip hop and R&B, here's new Drake, nonstop Power 105. <laughs> and I, I just, I just can't do that. You know, that does nothing for my creative juices whatsoever. Like, so that's when I really started to get bored. And luckily, uh, a new radio station already had popped up in the market. It was called Hot 98.9. And Hot 98.9 was about 50,000 watts to Z93's 100,000 watts. Much smaller station. Didn't have, you know, big corporate backing or anything like that. But they wanted me to come over and do the night show. You know, Monday through Friday, 7 to midnight. And I took that opportunity. 
and you know, I, and everybody was saying, oh, you're so crazy to leave Z93. It's the big station. But I already had peep game. Like, it was people working at Z93 that I had been listening to on the radio for 15 years. You know, and it's just like they were just there. Some of them were still in part-time positions for 10, 15 years. So in my mind, I'm like, if I stay here, the only way I'm going to ever get a full-time job is if somebody dies. You know what I mean? And then, they, then that's not guaranteed. So I just took the opportunity to go get a chance to do what I love to do five, six days a week on Hot 98.9. And I'm glad I did that because, you know, one of my uh, great friends and mentors, he's the first person that ever hired me. To, get a, to have a full-time position in radio. His name was George Cook, and he's actually now the operations manager at K104 in Dallas. So, you know, we both started in South Carolina, so. Yeah, I think that's interesting because people sometimes get blinded by big names, but you get uh, more creative opportunities um, in different arenas. So, I never like I never liked the big name. You know what I mean? I always want to go somewhere and, like, make make something out of nothing, so to speak. Like, even when I, even when I first moved to New York and I was, I was working with Wendy Williams, I remember... I remember sitting in Wendy's studio one day, and this is when um, uh, Star used to be on the mornings at Power 105, and he got, he got fired and arrested. And I remember looking at him on the front page of the paper, taking out a radio station in handcuffs, and me saying to myself, if I do what I'm supposed to do here as Wendy's sidekick co-host, I can one day host that morning show. I never thought about Hot 97. I always liked Power 105, because Power 105 was the station that wasn't the big station it is now at the time. So I always, I always feel like I want to go somewhere that needs that that jump start. It's interesting you don't like big brands and you work for iHeartRadio. Well, no, I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> Power 105 wasn't what it was. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It now, wasn't. It was the Challenger ago, brand. They was about to change. They was about to flip Power 105's format before the Breakfast Club. It was going to be like Bobby Bones in the morning, country radio station. You know what I mean? Power 105, home of hee haw and freaking honky tonk. So. <laughs> You know, they they bought us in and we kind of turned things around. Yeah. No, it's been a really amazing journey. How did you get the name Charlemagne the God? Oh, well, I used to um, sell crack. And when I, when, I sold, when I sold crack, I would always say my name was Charles or Charlie. Because I'm from a small town. I'm from Monk's Corner. It's like, at the time, the population was like 8,000 people. So it's like... Yeah. Fiends would roll up on the block and, and they could see me and be like, oh, that's Larry or Julie's son. You know what I mean? And act like I'm out there doing something wrong, but you out here buying crack. But they would still go and tell my parents on me. Yeah. You know? Oh, they buy from you and then go tell on yeah, you. Like yeah, I saw yeah, your yeah. son uh, buying crack. You know, I mean, selling crack. Like, yeah, but you buying it. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like I would always say my name was Charles or Charlie. And then when I um, got kicked out of the two high schools, I started going to night school, and I was just reading in a history book one day, and I saw that Charlemagne was French for Charles the Great. So I really just looked at it and was like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to start calling myself Charlemagne. Like, it was just that simple. I mean, I'm like 17 years old. Come on, I used to smoke mad weed. And then it's like, you know, the God is because I used to, I study five, I used to study 5% teachings, uh, and I still study 5% teachings, but, you know, and, you know, they teach that God is a Greek word derived from the Aramic words, gumar, az, bar, which means wisdom, strength, and beauty, and the first letter of each word was used by Greek students in their identification of their all-wise Egyptian ancestors. So I'm like, oh, okay. So when I started studying the 5% teachings and reading books like, you know, from, uh, from N-words to gods by a kill, I don't like to say that word in front of white people, from N-words to gods... <laughs> you know, by Akil and, you know, reading Message to the Black Man by Elijah Muhammad, you know, I realized, like, you know, I started carrying myself like that. You know, the black man is God. So I started calling myself Charlemagne the God, which makes no sense because Charlemagne is Charles the Great. So actually it'd be like Charles the Great the God. But, you know, I was 17, man. You know what I mean? And it's, it's stuck. It looks good on a marquee. Yeah. 
So what's your daily routine? So you have a morning show. So kind of walk us through mm-hmm. uh, what do you get up at like, you know, 3.30 in the morning or? 4.20 every morning. <laughs> I do. 4.20 every morning. It's funny you say that because when you're on your way here, um, someone emailed me that you were going to get here at 4.20. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, 4.20 every morning. Where's um, Shida at? Shida told you that? I try, I try not to hit the snooze button because, like, I, you know you know how they say in football, you know, football is a game of inches. That's how morning radio is. Like, if I leave out the house 4.34, 4.35, I'm going to get to work, like, 6.05, and that's not oh, good because right. yeah. I'm supposed to be on the air at 6 a.m. So a lot of times when you hear me waking up late, it's because, I mean, when you hear me getting on the air late, it's because I literally woke up like four or five minutes too late. So I get up every morning, 4.20, immediately say my prayers, you know, thank thank God for another day of life. I got two daily affirmation books that I read out of. I read um, The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, and I read um, Your Best Life by Joel Osteen. And I like both of those because it gives you a good balance, you know what I'm saying? One is spiritual, which is Joel Osteen, and the, one, the, the other one is like stoic wisdom. And then like when I get in my, when I get in my truck, I either, I either do three things. I either throw on Oprah's Super Soul Conversations, mm-hmm. or I throw on um, some 90s R&B, or, 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 or I ride to nothing at all. But what I don't do, I don't touch my phone until I get to the radio station. Like, not until, like, 6 a.m., you know what I mean? Because I don't want to – I, I like my, my mind to be a blank slate. I don't want nobody setting my tone for the day. You know, I open up my phone and see a bunch of crazy text messages, uh, some missed calls from somebody calling me in the middle of the night because they want to talk about something, but it's really not nothing important at all. I don't want to go to my social media and, you know, tweet out, thank you, God, for another day of life, and somebody tells me, I wish you had, wish you had died. You know? <laughs> I like to set my own tone. So that's my, that's my morning ritual. So um, what are three tips of advice for young people, the people in this room or hustlers that are on the come up from your journey? So from Monk's Corner to kind of mm-hmm. where you are, do you have like three pieces of advice or tips that you live by? Uh, yeah. At the New York Agency here, we believe in New York hustle. So we believe that that's the way you get things done. So do you have a, a few quick kind of tips that you give people or, yeah, mine or some is simple. life advice? Mine is simple. Mine is keep God first. That's number one. Uh, number two is stay humble. And number three is keep working. You know? Like, that's, that's all I've ever done in my life. Good. That's great. That's it. Because, you know, I, I come from a, a very spiritual background. Like, my, my mother was a Jehovah's Witness. And, you know, my aunts were Jehovah's Witnesses. My grandmother was a Baptist. My father, he was a witness till he got this fellowship. And then he got into Islam. So I've always had, like, a real spiritual foundation. And my whole life, I come from praying people. You know, so I'm a praying man. And then, you know, just staying humble is just, you know, realizing that none of this is guaranteed at the end of the day. Like, I'm not one of these people that believe I am my things. You know, I'm not, you know, a nationally syndicated radio personality. I'm not a TV personality. I'm not an author. I mean, I am. But at the end of the day, when all of that goes away, I still want to be known as just being a good person. You know, that's why you see me. I walk in the room. I say, what's up to everybody, you know, from the custodian to the CEO. I don't know who's who. I just treat human beings as I think human beings should be treated. And I feel I'm an energy person. So I want to, you know, give out the energy that I want to receive back. And, you know, keep keep working is like, that's all I know how to do because I don't got no skill set. Like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't go to college. You know, I don't have no yeah. degrees or anything like that. Like, I'm... I don't, I don't look at myself as having it, anything special to offer the world. I'm just putting positions to work, so I work. That's yeah, it. But you have a voice and an influence, but that's because of the hustle, you're saying. 
I guess. Yeah. yeah. So your first book, you really took everyone through your life journey. It was so personal. It was very informative about your journey. But your second book is about mental health. So you've had two books in 18 months. What made you, you're dropping more books than DJ Clue was dropping mixtapes back uh. in the 90s. But <laughs> what, uh, what, what made you want to go into becoming an author or go into the realm of writing? I've, I mean, I've always been a writer, though. My mom is an English teacher. You know, my mom was an English teacher, and she always kept a book in my face. And, you know, I grew up on the Book It program. You know, you read four books, and you get a free pizza. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. The Book It program was popping. And, you know, a lot of times you used to have to write reports on those books. So I was always... I was always writing, and then I always used to like write short stories. And then you know, a lot of the books that I used to read, you know, was like Judy Bloom and Beverly Clearly, and like a lot of the women in those books used to have journals and diaries. I'd be like, "What is a diary?" <laughs> so I just started like writing a diary when I was young, just jotting down things that would happen in my life. And then, of course, you know, when I wanted to rap, I would be writing. And I've always had ideas for TV shows and you know, movies and stuff like that. So I've always written, like even. You know, I've, I've written for, like, other personalities. Like, you see other personalities, they have, like, those columns in those magazines, like, Life and Style and stuff like that. I pinned a lot of that stuff. Like, I used to, I used to write for Ozone Magazine. I have my own column in there. So I always would write, you know, like, like all the time. So this book is Shook One, Anxiety is Playing Tricks on Me. Mm -hmm. So walk us through your thought process behind this. Because you had your first book is your life story. Yes. And then you decided to move the conversation over to mental health. Um, I didn't plan on writing a book on mental health. You know, like I told y'all, I'm not an expert at anything. I just like to share my experiences. So, you know, when you got book publishers and you got your book agents pressing you to write a second book and you're like, nah, I'm not really feeling like writing a second book right now because I don't really do things for money. Don't get me wrong, I love money, but I don't do things for money because I feel like when you start doing things for money, that's, that's whack. You know, that's when you see your favorite rapper, they come out with the wackest album ever because they did it for the big advance, you know what I mean? And so it's just like I never wanted to move like that, but I remember being in Anguilla last year, which is one of my favorite islands, and I'm looking at, I, I like, I'm big on friend and family vacations, so it's like we go in these large groups, so I'm just like, looking at my family and I'm looking at my friends and in that brief moment, I just had like this feeling of serenity, like this real brief moment of peace, no anxiety, no worries, no nothing. And I was like, how do I bottle this and bring this back home so I can, you know, feel like this all the time? And, you know, I had already been flirting with the idea of, you know, going to therapy to deal with, with my anxiety. And that, after that trip, it really made me just say, you know what, I'm going to go. And so I started going to therapy, and when I started going to therapy and having these conversations with my therapist, you know, she started telling me that I probably suffer from PTSD as well. And, you know, I got trauma from things that happened, to, happened in my life when I was younger on top of the anxiety. So for me, I was just like, okay, this is what I want to write about. I want to write about the experience of dealing with this because it was all like new revelations to me because I got diagnosed with anxiety in 2009. And when I got diagnosed with anxiety, I had been fired for the fourth time from radio, I had to move back from New Jersey, living back home in South Carolina with my mom. I was like 31, 32 years old. My daughter was like two years old. You know, my now wife was living with her, back with her parents in Monk's Corner. And so it's like, I remember driving down this highway in South Carolina called I-26, and I just had like a crazy panic attack. And I've always had panic attacks, I just didn't know what they were. So it's just like, yo, my chest tightened up, and. 
Heart started palpitating crazy. I even convinced myself that my left arm was going numb. I had shortness of breath. So I pulled over. I drank some water, took some deep breaths. I'm like, yo, I'm going to go to the hospital. I went to the hospital. They did the EKJ. EK, I started to say UGK. EKG. <laughs> EKG on my heart. And they was like, yo, you got a, a fine heart. You got an athlete's heart. You know? And, like, and he was like, do you suffer from anxiety? And I was like, no, not that I know of. And he was like, it sounded like you had a panic attack. And he was like, are you stressed about anything? And I was like, hell yeah, I'm stressed. <laughs> about a lot of things. So in my mind, when he told me that, I didn't know that it was something, I didn't even think it was something that, I, that had happened to me previously several times over throughout my life. In my mind, I was just like, okay, I'm gonna give me another job in radio and everything will be fine. That's the only reason I'm stressed because I'm collecting these unemployment checks right now. But you know, I, I ended up getting the Breakfast Club you know, position later that year, but it's like over the past seven, eight years, none of those feelings went away. In fact, they've actually, intensified, you know, the anxiety got worse. PTSD even got worse because other things started happening to me outside of what used to happen to me in the street. Y'all see me almost get jumped in front of the radio station before and people wanting to fight me outside the station. So it's just always, my head's always on swivel. So I just decided to go to therapy to, to figure it all out. And as I'm sitting in there having these conversations with her, I just decided to like, you know, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this experience of, you know, dealing with this anxiety my whole life and having this PTSD and having this, this trauma. Because, yo, man, we are damaged people, especially you, if you grew up in a certain environment. And, like, I think a lot of times we don't take the time to, to fix that damage because we don't acknowledge that we are damaged, you know? We normalize a lot of damage in our community. You know, it's a lot of things we celebrate, a lot of things we glorify, and it's a lot of the wrong things. Like, we wear them as badges of honor. Like, you know, you shouldn't cheer your man who came home from prison you know, you shouldn't cheer him on more than you cheer your dude who graduated college. So this book is just about me unpacking all of that type of stuff. So I didn't even know I was writing a book about mental health until I started realizing that anxiety is a mental health issue and that anxiety is actually the number one mental health issue in America today. And, you know, the PTSD is a mental health issue and the trauma is with mental health. And I just thought it would be dope just to share those experiences because nobody ever does. And then when it started to take the shape of me having all of these mental health conversations, I decided to bring in a guy named Dr. Ish Major, who's a brother who graduated from the University of South Carolina. You know, I like to, you know, rep where I'm from. So when I saw him being, you know, graduating from the University of South Carolina, I was like, oh, that's dope. I want to use him. And he's a therapist. And so he gives clinical correlations to all my experiences in the book. I share all of these different, you know, stories about anxiety and all of these things that give me anxiety. And he gives clinical correlations to them all. So it's me giving my experiences. And then he's gives you the expert analysis. Yeah, that was one of the things I thought was very unique about the book was that each chapter is broken up in two. It's your story mm -hmm. and then his clinical, you know, Yeah, correlation. Because, you, know, you, you, know, you know, people can't wait to, to, to knock whatever it is that you're doing. They'll be like, you ain't no expert on mental health. <laughs> absolutely right. I'm not. Well, you know, the World Health Organization says that 26% uh, of every American over 18 years old has a mental health challenge, and mm. it's more than cancer, diabetes, and heart disease combined. Mm. But we don't really take the time to talk about it where you can easily talk to somebody about those three, and they're open to the conversation. But once you get kind of across the invisible rail of mental health, people get very protective and very uneasy. Because so. nobody wants to be perceived as crazy. You know what I mean? Like, like, and, and then and when you grow up in certain places, they don't tell you about all of these things that are available to give your mind a little tune-up, you know? So that's, that's, that's all it simply is. It's just a lack of information as far as, like, you know, people knowing that they can sit down and talk to a therapist and unpack this kind of stuff. 
So how does hip hop shaped your book? Because it's called Shook One. Yep. And the, <laughs> the foreword is by Scarface. Yes, sir. Which is amazing. I've never read any book where Scarface did the... I mean, I don't read that many, but I'm, I'm just saying in my normal reading... I'm very proud of Scarface that. Scarface was keeping it real. Yeah. I didn't know what was going on. But how has hip-hop shaped your point of view on the topic? Because you use a lot of... Your first chapter is so anxious by Genuine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because... It, it's called So Anxious, and in parentheses, it says Genuine Voice. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because, you know, growing up, everybody knows the Mob Deep song, Shook Ones, right? Yeah. Rest in peace to Prodigy. Like, growing up, being shook was the last thing that you wanted to be. Yeah, like, yeah. You we know that song. Shook. Yeah. yeah. So it's just like, you know, I like to live my truth. So I always say when you live your truth, nobody can use your truth against you. So that's just me embracing the fact that, yo, yes, I am a shook one. We all are shook at different points. But, you know, when you grow up in the hood, you can't be considered shook. You can't be considered soft. You know what I'm saying? You got to give off this hardcore persona, you know, I can't be Childish Gambino, I gotta be Tupac, you know what I mean? Like, you, like, you, you gotta have your chest out all the time. And, and then, you know, and, and, and anxiety playing tricks on me is a play off the Ghetto Boy song, Mind Playing Tricks on Me. Because when you realize what anxiety is, you realize what PTSD is, and you go back and you listen to that record, you realize all of those brothers had anxiety in that song. Every single verse was an anxiety-filled verse. And I remember just, you know, hitting Scarface like, yo, did, did you suffer from anxiety? Did you know that? Because, you know, when you in the street, a lot of that paranoia just comes with the lifestyle, you know? So I, I just thought that they were rapping about, you know, three brothers in the lifestyle. You know, I was living that same kind of life, so I just thought we were all paranoid because of the lifestyle we was living. But no, you, get, you got that too, but then you got the anxiety on top of it. And Scarface still suffers from anxiety. To this day. So, you know, that, that song was him, you know, uh, talking about the anxiety he experienced in the street. But now he's a grown 45, 46-year-old man, and he's got whole other anxieties when it comes to his kids, when it comes to, you know, how he's just perceived as a black man in this world, like being on a plane. Like, he refuses to ride a small plane, you know. And if you read the forward, he talks about knowing what gives you anxiety. And that's something that's very important to me. Like, I believe in rational anxiety and irrational anxiety. Like, rational anxiety is knowing the source of your anxiety. If I know the source of my anxiety, it's way easier for me to deal with. Like I talk to millions of people every day. I even come in here and talk into this room. Like I know it's gonna be people in here. Some people are afraid of public speaking, but me, I know that feeling. When I start getting that anxiousness in my stomach, I'm like, all right, I don't gotta do it number two. I just know that I gotta talk <laughs> to a group of people. You know what I'm saying? So that helps me to deal with it. But the irrational anxiety is when you get those fears in your head and you don't even know where they're coming from like you start worrying about alien invasions and you know i remember i remember when uh that guy was i think he was at south by southwest and he was like mailing fedex packages to people's jobs and they were blowing up our neighborhoods or something like that and yo i was like don't touch nothing at the house any package that comes to the house in jersey don't touch nothing like that's that's the kind of anxiety you know that's the irrational anxiety that scares you and what do you think causes that? You think it's social media? It's interesting you don't look at your phone for a few hours, but much of your presence in your ecosystem is online. So mm -hmm. do you think social media is causing it or the jobs or the hours or our family? What do you think is Every, causing all of the above. everything? Yes, but definitely social media. I, I, I cannot imagine being a 14-year-old kid growing up in the social media era. Like, it would just scare me. It would just scare me to death because social media, you know, my, my, my man, Stephen Furtick, he's a pastor. He's from uh, Monk's Corner, South Carolina. 
he's a good friend of mine, and he, he says that social media is everybody's highlight reel. You know, they're showing you everything that they do good. They're showing you all the shots they make. They never show you the shots that they miss. You know, they never show you the mistakes that they make. You know, they never show you the setbacks. And it's like, it's painting an unattainable picture of perfection. So when you're a kid and you see that, and then you go into the real world, and now we live in this world where it seems like that picture of perfection they're trying to paint online, they're trying to carry with them in the real world. So nobody's admitting to their mistakes. Nobody's admitting that they have flaws. You know, nobody's admitting that they're damaged. Nobody wants to talk about their setbacks. Nobody wants to talk about their losses. Everybody's pretending to be perfect. If I was 14 years old and I made the simple mistake that 14-year-olds make in this era when everybody else is pretending to be perfect, I'd probably want to kill myself. Because I'm looking around like, damn, what's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with you. Everybody else just fronting. So, so, so that's why I'm so, you know, I'm so hell-bent on sharing the good, the bad, and the ugly of my life. Because I want people to know that it's okay to make mistakes. You know what I'm saying? It's okay to, to have setbacks. It's okay to, to take losses. I don't even believe in, in losses. I believe that L is just, just stands for learning. You know what I'm saying? I feel like, you know, if you learn from the situation, it's not a loss. And that's just how I live my life. So Kanye West. Mm-hmm. Y'all love Kanye. Knock it off. Um, y'all know y'all love Ye. Y'all so, care about him way too much. Yeah, I feel there's like a, a, a connection between you two. Uh, when he came up with his last album, he chose one journalist to speak to, uh, and that was you. Uh, before I'm a he, journalist? Oh, Yeah, shit. yeah, yeah. Okay. But, yeah. Before he went on TMZ, but before the MAGA hat and all that, he chose mm-hmm. you, and you went to his house. And uh, I rewatched the interview, and the first question you asked him was about, uh, you know, how you doing? How is your mental health? And I, I kind of wanted to go down that wormhole for a bit to mm-hmm. know why you opened up with that question. Was that because you were working on the book, or is that something that you were genuinely concerned about his well-being? Because he has a great platform, but, you know, his mental health is something that, you know, people are concerned about. Nah, I mean, I was just genuinely concerned because, you know, if you've watched any Kanye West interview over the past couple of years, I just read his tweets. He's screaming at us that he's got mental health issues. Like he's constantly talking about it. And for whatever reason, people just breeze by it. Like even when he did his last interview with Harvey Levin at TMZ, he was like, yo, I'm off my meds. And Harvey didn't say nothing. I'm like, that's when the conversation should stop right then and there. Like you should know that probably everything he said prior to that wasn't even coming from a good headspace. So I genuinely was concerned. Like, yo, how are you? You know, I think that's just a a good opening question for anybody. You know what I mean? But really mean it when you ask someone, how are you? You know, because sometimes you'll say, how are you to somebody? And they'll be like, man, I'm fucked up. And you'd be like, <laughs> I wasn't ready for that one. You know, I'm just, I was just saying, how are you? I didn't really mean, how are you? I was just, you know, being courteous, you know? So do you feel him talking more is helping or hurting the situation? Uh, hmm. Talking more about what? Uh, well, just him talking in general, it just seems to be generally hurting. Uh, yeah, so him talking in general, no. It's not helping anyone. Him talking in general. That's why I canceled the, the mental health talk that we were supposed to have. You know, we, we um, yeah, like I said, you know, the past couple of years, he's always had, he's always talked about his mental health issues. And I was like, nobody has ever had the conversation with Kanye about his mental health. And like, you know, for me, being so open about 
my struggles with mental health and, you know, him doing things like putting bipolar is awesome on the front of his album cover. If we really trying to eradicate the stigma of mental health in the African-American community, why not have that conversation with him? You know what I mean? Like, let's have that conversation together. Two brothers on stage just sharing their experiences with mental health and how we deal with it. But, you know, when I saw him at the White House and he, he, he was talking about, you know, he doesn't, he got misdiagnosed and, you know, he really was suffering from sleep deprivation and, and you know, he's not on his meds. I'm like, yeah, we, uh, he needs to, he needs to, he needs to deal with that, you know? So I just didn't feel like the conversation would be productive. I feel like it would have been so many other narratives that would have came from that conversation that would have distracted from the conversation I'm trying to elevate, which is the conversation of mental health. Now, why is mental health coming up right now? So uh, Taraji B. Henson, J. Cole, Selena Gomez, mm -hmm. Chance the Rapper, Demi Lovato. Mm -hmm. You know, they, a lot more people are open about it. They're taking timeouts from social media. But why is now the moment? I'm just going through your past 20 years on air or in the last uh, several years on The Breakfast Club. Why do you think the moment is happening right now? I think this is because this is what God wants us to be discussing right now. I think the universe is just conspiring for us to have this conversation. Because like I said, when I started writing this book over a year ago, I didn't know that it was going to turn into a book about mental health. I didn't know that the book was going to be coming out in this moment. I didn't know Taraji P. Henson was starting her Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation to eradicate the stigma of mental health in America. Even the interview I did with Kanye, me and Kanye did that interview in like the middle of April, like April 10th or 12th or something like that. It didn't come out until May 1st. You know what May 1st was? Mental Health Awareness Month. Like to me, I look at signs. Like to me, that was just all signs and it's been a, it's been signs happening all year like you said chance the rapper pledging a million a million dollars to chicago mental health services i just feel like the universe is conspiring for us to have this conversation i don't think it's anything that somebody can take credit for or something that you know like hey i decided to speak on this now sometimes things are just out of our control like you just got to sit back and let let god work and i think god is working through a lot of people right now for us to have this conversation and I think it's important because, like, I believe everything is mental, man. I'm one of those people who I believe in the secret, you know what I'm saying? Like the law of attraction. I believe that. Yeah, it's important. I believe you have a vision board? Of course. Yeah. Of course. What's, I, what's on your vision board? Right now, really everything that I've written on my vision board has been more spiritually related. Like, I just want to be the best I can possibly be as a human being. I want to be, you know, more, more spiritually full. And I guess, you know, going, going to therapy is part of that because, you know, like I said, you know, your thoughts become things. And like sometimes our brains get cluttered with so much negativity and so much BS, which is scary for somebody like me. Because, you know, I, like I said, I got vision boards. I write down my long-term goals and my short-term goals. If I show you my long-term goals and short-term goals and show you how many things I've crossed off and got done, that's scary. You know, when you really realize the power of your mind and the power of your brain and how your, how your mental really works, it's scary. So when you have those negative thoughts that creep up in your mind, I got to dismiss those immediately because I'm the type of person, you know, the things I want to happen in my life, I constantly think about. The things that I don't want to happen, I got to dismiss immediately. So that's the fear that creeps up in you. When you get that anxiety, that's what makes your anxiety worse because you feel like if you hold on to this thought for too long, it's actually going to manifest. That's what gives me the panic attacks. Mm. So, you know, that's why I think mental health is so important because we got to get all of this clutter out, man. It's like, it's like organizing a garage or something or organizing a basement or an attic. Like, you got to get rid of uh, your closet. You got to get rid of everything that you don't want. You know, give all the clothes you're not wearing anymore to Goodwill and the stuff that you do need, organize them properly and then you make room for new stuff. Do you believe everybody needs a therapist? Yes, or, or, or at least 
somebody that they can talk to. You know what I'm saying? Somebody that gives good, wise advice. You know, I'm, I'm from the South, so I grew up around great therapists who needed therapists themselves, but, you know, they were, they were wise and they had experience. You know, my grandmother, you know, even my father. You know, my father is like what I call a, a fucked up good person. You know, I'm a fucked up good person. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, he was, but he was, he was, he was still a father at the end of the day. He taught me a lot of BS as well, but you know, he, he instilled in me a lot of good things too. But I think that everybody needs therapists. I think you need a, a spiritual advisor, you know what I mean? Talk to your pastor. Like, yeah, you got to build a committee of people to keep your mind right. Yeah, it's hard. I, I once went to couples therapy, really, but uh, it didn't work out. Like, well, actually, maybe it worked out. I don't know. It just, we didn't stay together, but... I at least tried. Did it work for the moment? Yeah, it was good. It was helpful. I think uh, I have a lot of therapists in my family, so uh, Thanksgiving's a disaster. But um, you know, well, every therapist wants to like analyze every word yeah. over turkey dinner. You know what I mean? When did like, you, you go to therapy for the first time? Uh, I went three years ago. Oh, yeah. so I thought because you had therapists in your family, you started early. Cause that's no, I've I've avoided them intentionally. Really? Yeah. Why? Well, because it's too much Thanksgiving therapy. That's no, the I feel thing. what you're saying. You know, if you're going to go in an saying. organized room, that's one thing. But if you're going to go at the dinner table, you know, it's just it's a little extra. You yeah, know, you I just want, want cranberry sauce. Yeah, I don't really want this. Yeah, you, you want to have? Much. I don't really want to do all this right now. Yeah, but I love you, and I'll see you next year. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to have those intimate, vulnerable conversations <laughs> yeah. one on one with yeah, somebody. Yeah. I get it. So, uh, the stigma of mental health, what can we do to improve on that? So, we're all advertisers or media or marketing, and we work with a lot of brands and we're all influencers in our own circle. But, what can we do? And what is your advice for people in this room to better get the message out? Because it really was mental illness and now it's mental health. So, yeah. I think language does, you know, hold a big place in it. But, w what is some suggestions that we could do for our clients or our brands to be able to talk about it a little clearer? I, I think we got to do what we're doing right now, you know, just having a conversation about it. I think that's what normalizes it. Because like I said, I didn't know anxiety was considered a mental illness. I thought anxiety was just anxiety, you know, but now that I know anxiety is considered a mental illness and PTSD, I think that we just have to have these conversations because there's nothing wrong with it. You know, we like I said, we're all damaged in some way, shape or form. We all got some type of trauma and something that we've been through that is causing us to, you know, not be our best selves, our best selves mentally. So I think the best thing that we can do as people is just have these conversations. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, like I didn't know what a therapist was unless I was watching Frasier, you know, <laughs> and nobody ever talked to me about a therapist. And like, even when I was writing this book, you know, having conversations with my mom and telling my mom, you know, about me going to therapy. She told me she was going to therapy. I didn't know she was going to therapy. She was going to therapy when her and my father got a divorce back in 1998. I had no idea that oh, wow. in, in the early 2000s, my mom so was going to therapy. So she didn't even feel comfortable speaking to you on the I, subject. She, ne she never mentioned it to me at all. Like, I don't know if she told my older sister or what, but she, I never had that conversation with her. Now, ma imagine, I'm like 18, 19 around that time. So if she would have told me that back in the day, it wouldn't have been so taboo to me. You know, that's something that I may have looked into way earlier on in life instead of waiting until I'm 39 and having to unpack 40 years of baggage and crying over things I could have cried over 15 years ago. Yeah, is there like self-diagnosis that you did or? Um, I mean, what, what should people look at to know? I just, was, I just was starting to feel overwhelmed. Yeah. To be totally honest with you, I was just feeling like overwhelmed. Like everything was beginning to be 
too much. And I think a lot of times when you are the go-to person for a lot of people, you know, I think all of us need to ask ourselves, who does the go-to person go to? You know, that person you leaning on all the time, who the hell are they leaning on? Yeah. You know, you know they, got that, they got that meme on uh, social media, say, check on your strong friend. That's real, you know? So I just, it, just, it, just, it just started to get overwhelmed and it became too much. And plus, you know, I like to study the habits of successful people. You know, I like to talk to people who are successful. And when you sit down and you talk to a lot of successful people, it don't matter what industry they're in, majority of them go to therapy in some way, shape, or form or have been to therapy in some way, shape, or form. So if you're trying to, like, better yourself and you really want to be the best you can be in your field, you know, sometimes, like, therapy is the wave. So why did you, one more thing, why did you start a podcast? You know, you're on the radio every day. Um, what made you want to talk more? Is it, is it? <laughs> He's like, you're talking up. four you hours a day. Sometime? How much talking can you do, my friend? Yeah, my man, uh, Chris Morrow. Chris Morrow was in here somewhere. Chris is my guy. Chris, uh, Chris told me two things that I should do. That have absolutely changed my life. He told me I should start a podcast, and he told me I should write a book. Yeah. And he told me this like seven years ago, you know. And at first, I was being like bougie and elitist when it came to the podcast because I'm like, I do radio. Why would I do a podcast, you know? But then I, it was it was that's that's actually me being hypocritical because I did enjoy podcasts. Like I actually would listen to the Combat Jack show, you know. Rest in peace to my man Combat Jack. I listened to the Reed, Kid Fury, and Crystal. So I used to enjoy podcasts, you know. So I'm like. And why not? And plus, you know, I like uh, owning things and I like having my own platform. And so it was a way for me to help, you know, friends of mine, you know, have bigger voices. And, you know, one of those one of those friends was Andrew Schultz. A lot of people don't like Andrew, but that's fine. I think he's hilarious. And so it's just like he's I decided to use him as my co-host. And I mean, it kind of took on a life of its own. And it's almost like Breakfast Club rewind or breakfast club post show because by the time we do the podcast last week it's like interviews that have happened on the breakfast club and all of these other world events and it's just long form conversation you know like you really get to unpack things as my therapist says so i just enjoy doing it and plus it's very lucrative now i never i never thought that the podcast would end up this lucrative i just i didn't like because like i said i don't do things for money i do things because i genuinely want to do them but now it's like Podcast is big business, yeah. big business. Do you think that we uh, that our soundbite economy is not helpful? It's the worst. It sucks. It's terrible. Every the world is out of context. Everything is out of context. Like I don't even know what to believe anymore. Like you have to really do deep dives to get the full story of things. Like this is a headline culture. They'll give you a headline. It's so funny to watch. Uh, one of the dopest things I'm watching on social media now, though, is they're taking these clickbait headlines. They're actually using clickbait for good. Like, they, like today I saw Kanye West and Kim Kardashian split up, but when you click on it, it takes you to register to vote. You know? That's dope. I'm like, yo, I'm like, yo finally somebody is harnessing this power for good. Because, like, this headline culture sucks. Like, some people don't click on the story. It's rare. Like, you got to really care to click on the story. And sadly, we only care about the bullshit. Yeah. What do you, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? I know you got a lot more running to do, but when, when it all said and done, what do you want people to remember you for? I don't know. I have not a clue, to be honest with you. I, I, really, I really don't know. I, I wouldn't even know how to begin to answer that question. Like, legacy. When you said that, I was like, am I dying soon? Does he know something I don't know? Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, man, I think that 
I just want people to, to, to say what I always tell people when you go, you know, when you're working somewhere or you're in school, when you're around a group of people, I think that, you know, when you leave, I would always like for people to say, yo, he was a pleasure to work with. You know, I feel like that's what has caused me to get more opportunities, you know, than, than other people. Just the fact that I'm a pleasure to work with. That's what they say. I don't say that. You know, I just strive to be as nice as possible because my grandmother always told me manners will take you where money won't. You know, so I just, you know, try to be a good person. So I guess I just want, that's, that's it at the end of the day. I want people to say I'm, I was a good person. You know, that's it. That's important. Yeah. Well, uh, before we wrap up here, we have, uh, I brought a, um, some money guns here so we could uh, do some good for the first five rows. Money guns? Yeah. So, uh, Wow. So e you, e you e want to e treat your audience like yeah, strippers, yeah. Doug? That's so no, disrespectful. No, uh, but e each dollar bill in here has your face on it. These are limited edition Charlemagne dollars. So if you want to shoot the crowd. So basically, you're telling these people that this money is worth nothing. Yeah. Are you ready? Do I shoot at people yeah, or shoot up? Yeah, let's just shoot up. Ready? Oh. One, two, three. Ready? Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know why this feels OD disrespectful. <laughs> It feel mad disrespectful. Yo, we got we got Charlemagne. I'm sorry. Bucks. How many people are giving you Charlemagne dollars? I'm gonna keep a few of these. You ain't never been to the strip club with me. I take the money. <laughs> I take the money right no, off the stage. You can't take the money. You can't take the money. We were doing good. We were doing good. So um, I love this. I love this. I, for anyone past the fourth row, we're sorry. Can you spend this? Yeah, you can spend that. We got a, we, we made custom money with your face on it. So if I go in the store with this, they're not going to say this counterfeit? No, they're going to say, Charlemagne. No, I don't know if that's wow. what they're going to say. One more thing I want to ask you uh, before we wrap this up. You end your book with a quote, to share your weaknesses is to make yourself vulnerable. To make yourself vulnerable is your strength. Yes. Um, how did you pick that quote to, to wrap up your book? Um, it was a quote that I read a, a long time ago. And, you know, I, I always say that, you know, my first book was me being transparent. I, I've never had a problem being transparent. Transparent is just me sharing my story. You know what I mean? But I think going to therapy over the past year has made me more vulnerable. And, and the difference between transparency and vulnerability to me is, like I said, transparency is just me telling a story. Being vulnerable is me telling you how that's how you know that story actually made me feel. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so it's just like when I read that quote, I was like, "Yo, that is dope," because that goes into the whole "live your truth" model that I like to be about. You know, live your truth, so nobody can use your truth against you. So I feel like, man, there's not a a weakness that you can share. There's not an insecurity that you can share with the public that somebody can use against you, because that vulnerability at the end of the day is ultimately your strength. Because like I said, everybody fronting. So if all of y'all trying to be as real as y'all say y'all want to be, all of y'all being fake real because you're not telling the truth about the bullshit that's going on in your brain, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's important. Mm -hmm. So what's uh, one piece of advice that we should all do before we, uh, we get out of here and we could say Charlemagne made us do it? One piece of advice? Yeah. Put like the bullshit on social media? Oh, no. Nah, I'm, I'm going to tell you my motto. My motto is keep God first, stay humble, and keep working. All of y'all should write right. that down. That's so it's so simple and so easy to do. You know, like those are three simple things that all of us can do right now. You don't need no money, it don't matter what class you are, it don't matter what your religion is, your race, your gender, your sexuality. All of us can keep God first, stay humble and keep working. Charlemagne the God, thank yes, you sir. so much for coming by. Thank you, thank Doug. Thank you. Appreciate you.
You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shite Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashiteday.ny.com. 